0: Hey, it's Kevin O'Connor. Every week for seven years, Chris Vernon and I have been discussing and debating the NBA for the ringer. And if you didn't know it, we're now on our own podcast feed called The Mismatch. It's appropriately named because of our differing views and approaches to the NBA, whether it's news and rumors or the latest games. And I love our show because we'll go from yelling at each other about tanking to laughing about something that happened in a game the night before. It's my favorite part of every week, so give The Mismatch a listen every Tuesday and Friday on Spotify.
1: It's the Ringer NBA show presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find out what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out Live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 years and older. 18 and older in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com.
2: This episode is brought to you by Visible Wireless. Want a wireless provider that always brings its A-game? Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. And as if that wasn't already a huge win, you could use promo code RINGER20 to receive $20 off your first month Hello, and welcome to Group Chat. Yay. Yay. I am Justin Barrier. Joining me, as always, Rob Mahoney, Big Waz. And Rob, I have to say, thank you for not ducking this podcast. I know it was (laughs) tough when Waz and I did one in person, but you showed up today, unlike Joel Embiid, and we appreciate that. I just take it as part of
3: my personal responsibility as one of the faces of the league, you know? If I want to be big time, how could I possibly duck a chance to debate with you two, exchange
2: some takes, really really get things going here on this Sunday morning? So I have to say, we're going to talk about the most interesting teams ahead of the deadline. We did players a few weeks ago. We're going to do teams. But I want to talk about this Joel missing in Denver once again fiasco. First and foremost, people were upset even before this happened that they were selling this game as a rivalry, which I have to say is someone who comes up with dumb bits <laughs> just for people to kind of poke holes in them. They're missing the thread here. I don't understand why that was an issue, but then it became even more of an issue wise when Embiid didn't show up uh, with, with what seemed to be a pretty clear injury. He tried to give it a go in before the game and then he couldn't. And so to me, this is a little different than the resting the, the Victor Webanyama doesn't show up on the back end of a back to back and yet here we are with outrage. Do you agree or or not?
0: I don't agree with the outrage, obviously, um, but it's baked into the problem with the regular season and how teams have decided to carry it for, I don't know, 10 years now. Um, this is baked in every now and again, people are going to miss a game that we think is important because they don't think the regular season is that important. And I think my biggest issue with today's NBA star is it is that lack of appreciation that they have a burden to carry um, and to leave the league as good, if not better, than how they found it. And I don't think these guys feel that way. Um, And I think this is part of it. Yes, these guys, they get in as little trouble as NBA guys ever have. These guys are great spokespeople for the game. They're great at public speaking. They're very polished and corporatized. But when it comes to the nitty-gritty of ensuring that the league is in good standing as a product with the public— I just don't think these guys really care and see it as a long-term project that they themselves are a part of. And so Joel not playing in something that's supposed to be a big game doesn't surprise me because it's just not the attitude that these guys carry into it. And so, yeah, if people are mad that Joel's not playing in a big game. And even though, you know, they just played the other day, which I get it. Um, this is just what it is, man. Um I don't know how else to put it. Like These guys just don't see the extra parts as the job of being something that they're responsible for.
3: And in that way, they're just on a different page from, I think, the league itself. The league is telling us certain games matter more than others. In-season tournament games, they matter. National TV games, they matter. They have their own set of rules as to whether you're allowed to skip them or not. These, you know, not just nationally televised games, But ABC matinee games, those matter. This is a league partner. This is something we're trying to promote. This is an all-day spectacular. And yet, I think the players, for whatever reason was, they have decided, like, I'm going to manage my own career. I'm going to manage my own season. I'm going to manage my own body. And who can fault them for that? But there's just, like, a clear conflict of interest with that stuff. And maybe, honestly, the problem was that players weren't thinking this way from the beginning. Like, the league was allowed to profit and grow based on the prospect of these guys playing every night. I don't know that it's necessarily right or fair to assume that they're going to if this is what the rigors of the schedule are. If if, if guys decide they don't want to make it through 82 or they can't make it through 82, and we talk about Joel all the time as a guy who was injured in the playoffs, who was hurt at the ends of seasons. I don't know that we can do that and also say hey, you need to show up for every date on the calendar. The problem is what's important to Joel is very different than what's important to the league. And I don't know how to reconcile those things.
2: Yeah, I definitely think the load management issue is an actual issue. And you're starting to see the blowback of it and seeing the NBA try to maneuver around in order to address it. My thing is like the issue is the schedule And what the NBA has done by instituting these new rules, especially the one where you're completely out of awards consideration after you miss, what is it, 15 games, passes the buck onto the players as opposed to the league itself. And so Joel seemed like he was hurt. This isn't a planned rest day. He gave it a go, and then all of a sudden they they pulled him. I want to believe that this wasn't simply duckling or resting or any of this other bullshit. This was a legitimate injury here. And the fact that we are now put in a position of questioning that I think is very bad for the league because you have situations like Tyrese Halliburton giving it a go in Portland because it seemed like Pascal Siakam was there, but also because you know he wants to also be in the All-NBA considerations. His contract um, just is worth more if he makes All-NBA this year because he's on a max. All of a sudden, he hasn't played since then. Then we're getting into dicey territory. I'm just like... That- just trying to make this all about the players isn't the problem. The problem is the schedule is too damn long. It's long, but these guys are adults and they can make their own choices.
0: I don't I don't know that this is Joel Embiid's choice to make by himself, by the way. Load sure. management was not invented by players. It was invented by organizations, by um, strength and conditioning staff, by sports science staff. That's who invented this as an idea and a concept. Players didn't invent... Load management. So, this is a decision that he's making in conjunction with the team. I'm just saying that the way the, the attitudes that people have towards the regular season, I think it's signaled to everybody that these games don't matter. And I think folks have gotten the message loud and clear because it's been broadcast to them over and over that the NBA regular season does not matter. That's how everybody treats it. And, you know, I kind of wonder to myself, sometimes I say, I wonder if Carl Towns, just as an example, understands that it's impossible to make $55 million a year being the Carl Towns of any other sport. Right. And what that means, how we got to that point. Right. I wonder if the players understand that, like. And I hate to use that cliche, but you are standing on the shoulders of giants. Like the people that came before you took the shit very seriously. And I'm talking about all of their responsibilities. And so I wonder if these guys get that at all, you know? And you know, Joel might probably definitely, legitimately wasn't feeling like himself yesterday. And so he didn't play. But to me, I think it's just part of an overall issue that we have with the guys and where we are with the regular season. This
3: is kind of where I, I bump up against that idea, though, was of like, what do we or what do players owe the structures that support them? I think it's clear that they all benefit from the business of the NBA. And if the NBA as a product is not as healthy, they're not going to be making as much money. They're not going to be as famous. They're not going to be able to put on a show at the way they are right now. But I think there's also maybe there's a happy medium there where They aren't doing as much for the health of the league. They are making some personal decisions or prioritizing their body or prioritizing their health, whether you consider that load management or not. And also the league can be in a relatively healthy place. I I think we just have a hard time discussing that in a way where league health and league success has to be a line on a graph going up and up and up and up. But maybe the answer is the NBA is just never going to be as big of a, so long as this is the schedule format the NBA will never be as big a sport as the NFL. The NBA will probably not be as big a sport internationally, obviously, as things like, like soccer. And that's okay. Again, I think that's an okay place to be and a place where clearly lots of people can make lots of money doing it and have perfectly happy livelihoods.
2: Yeah, I think that is a key point. Because I do feel like there's this comparison that's been made, and it's a really modern thing, and I think it's a result of the boom, boomlet, whatever you want to call it, post LeBron going to Miami, where it seemed like the NBA was taking back territory, at least in the zeitgeist of sports fans, and all of a sudden the comparison, which when we were younger, like post Jordan, like that was never a thing, really. Like the M- NBA was always kind of on a different tier. NFL has always been just this Goliath and all of a sudden we're starting to compare the two and I'll be honest I tried to get into football this year I tried to get back into the Giants it seemed like they were they were coming back and all yeah, of how, a sudden how'd I'm that like, go for you awful <laughs> both because the Giants turned out were not good but because by week 8 or whatever 60% of the quarterbacks in the league were basically out and the NFL at this point seems like it's in a place with the M- same as the NBA where the stars matter. The individual stars matter to the success of your team more than anything else. And and obviously the quarterbacks are certainly quarterbacks. Yeah. And so they're dealing with the same issue, but you don't hear about it as much. And I, I think we talk about various aspects. We can get into the, like the nitty gritty and the nuance of certain different decisions, but it is the schedule. And I keep coming back to the idea that everything that people want to pass off as the big issue in the NBA misses the fact that there are too many games and that those games as a result, just aren't as important as the other ones. And it leads to more injuries and guys missing more games and not taking it as seriously. And so, like, I don't know. If we're going to keep doing 82, I think we're going to keep getting into the cycle-wise.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I would say, you know, I don't think the goal should be to become the behemoth that the NFL is. Like, it's just, it's just a cultish devotion to the sport. It is what it is. There's no catching the NFL. We need to, like, that should not be the comparison but like can we be as big as we were in 2016? <laughs> can we generate as much interest as we did in the Steph phenomenon and like stuff like that? Can we just make that a goal? Yeah. Right? That's all I'm saying, man. It's it's just the way that I think the product has been managed, like I said, it's been allowed to be cheapened. Um everybody thought Pops ridiculousness with media people and load management on purpose for national TV games. It was cute. It was quirky. Turns out that shit is terrible for business. A bunch of people followed it because, you know, when it's just the Spurs doing it, whatever, it's a team that nobody gives a shit about anyway. Um, Whatever. You can do that anonymously. But when everybody's doing it, it becomes a bigger problem, right? And at the time, people were saying that. Like, it's okay all right, cool, the Spurs do it. But, like, now when we got 32 teams that take that same approach to the regular season, you know, it is what it is. I, and, again, I don't want to put this on Joel. Like, he didn't invent this. Again, he was probably hurt, for real. Um, but, yeah, I think it's a, I think it's an issue going forward. And I think it's something that needs to be addressed. And, you know, um, because I'm American, I'm taught to think of these our our overseers in the freaking NBA ownership that these are the brightest minds in the history of life and business. And this maybe come up with a way to make some money off of the league that reduces inventory. You guys are so smart, so fucking creative, such geniuses as business. Figure it out. <laughs> We're just we're just calling
3: out the champions of industry, you know. L- <laughs> live up to your title. That's all we want.
0: I gotta stay on brand, Rob. I don't know what to do. There you go.
2: Um, all right, shall we transition to trading some players now?
0: So we're
3: the champions of industry in the in this <laughs> scenario.
2: <laughs> always, always. Um, well, since we're already talking about Rivals Week, the very important. Uh, date on the calendar and the NBA schedule nowadays. Why don't we talk about one of Waz's first teams, which is the Los Angeles Lakers? And I have to believe Waz <laughs> that you want to talk about the Lakers because of the D'Lo Renaissance here, the the D'Angelo Renaissance.
0: <laughs> I have a I have a Lakers fan in my life who obviously because they listen to the show understands my lack of enthusiasm for what D'Lo brings to the table. And I've been getting a lot more texts recently, right? Which, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's like... And the text just literally will say, D-Lo, um, he's played better. He's, he's always shown these level of flashes. I think, I think, the problem I think better D'Angelo, might be
3: underselling it, Was He's been He's been awesome. really good.
0: No, that's fair. He's been dropping 30, all kinds of shit. You're right. Uh, does anybody think this is going to happen in the postseason? Does anybody think he's going to bring this level of play... When the best defenses are locked into what the Lakers want to do, I have a hard time believing that. Um, His track record in the postseason, he had a good Memphis series. But basically, other than that, man, in the postseason, this guy, he's been a liability, you know. And so... The contract, as we've said, was signed to be traded, (laughs) okay? Um, That's literally uh, the reason that 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 contract exists on their books. And I think there's no way the Lakers can be at this point of the season and feel satisfied with where they are. So that's why I'm interested to see if they make any tweak. You know, obviously there was a lot of Zach, Zach Levine noise. There was DeMar DeRozan noise. There was Caruso noise. There was a lot of noise. But I just can't believe that they think this is the team that they should carry into the rest of the season and into the postseason.
3: I do think what this stretch has shown, though, is their defense, and really the whole season has proven this out, their defense is not at a level right now where it's going to carry them. They need more juice. They need these kinds of contributors and performances, whether it's D'Lo being on the heater of all heaters or bringing someone in via trade. But the reason the Lakers have seemed like they've had a pep in their step lately, the reason why they've been so much more competitive, the reason why you look up and they'll drop 73, 75 points and a half, that's just a different team than we're used to thinking about the Lakers being and that they've been for the vast majority of this season. So if they can click up offensively in any kind of way, This is a fundamentally more interesting team. And it's a reason why they're winning of late. It's a reason why they're more interesting of late. It's a reason why they're more watchable of late. How we get there, I think, is is the question. And if you're trading D'Angelo Russell, if you're trading, you know, cobbling together some role players for, you know, a, a slight step up or a supplementary star, I think we can have all those conversations. But it's still a complicated premise in terms of how you bring in talent here that fits and fits the timeline and that other teams are willing to give up for what the Lakers have to offer.
2: So that probably brings us to DeJounte Murray, which is the hot new rumor for the Lakers. It was the Zach Levine inevitable trade, but now it seems like Murray is the one that they're setting their sights on, or at least based on reports. And I think that makes probably more sense because he probably hits the in-between zone of what you're talking about there, where he is a good offensive player, and then maybe he can add more to your defense. Certainly he wouldn't take away from what you're getting from D'Angelo Russell. The problem, I think ultimately like circles us back to Russell in that it sounds like him having another year on his deal-wise is going to be a sticking point because for a team like the Hawks, they don't want D'Angelo Russell's ass around for another year, especially when you have teams like the Knicks, other teams in that derby who could probably give them an expiring contract plus all the other stuff that they need. Uh, in, in a weird way, the contracts that they re to be tradable might ultimately not be tradable enough because then you still need to hang out with Rui Hachimura for a couple of years or whomever to make the salaries match. And so in a weird way, I think they made the right decisions over the off season, if only to put themselves in position to bring on somebody else right now, but they might've overdone it to where like, they can't like they're going to have to account for that negative value. Those contracts.
0: I don't, As much as I don't like D'Angelo Russell, I don't think his contract is of negative value. Like, I don't think $18, $19 million a year for a guy who can start, and if you put him on the bench, he's overqualified as a reserve, backup, point guard, whatever, off guard, whatever you want to call him. I don't think these are, like, horrible contracts. I think the problem for me with the DeJounte Murray deal is that... (laughs) In theory, what he theoretically brings to the table is exactly what the Lakers need in terms of, you know, elite level on ball pressure, defensive instincts, and somebody who can do something in a pick and roll, you know, can create, can do all of those things. He's made an all-star team, that kind of thing. However, he ain't that guy anymore. He does not guard people anymore. It's It's that... this is a disease that afflicts a lot of NBA players who start off with these defensive reputations, then find themselves becoming 20 point 20 something point per game scorers. And they decide, listen, I'm a bucket getter now (laughs) and bucket getters defenses. That's what somebody else to do. (laughs) Go find somebody else to do that stuff. And I think DeJounte Murray has become that person. There was a point very early on in his career where he was a fucking menace. (laughs) On the ball, like literally probably the best in the league at that. He's not doing that anymore. And I wonder, you know, I'll I'll always believe in LeBron's ability to get the most out of guys and convince people that they should take a more team friendly role within, you know, the course of what the Lakers are trying to do. But I wonder, man, I really do.
3: Yeah, it's starting to feel like with the NBA sometimes that defense is what you do on your first contract and on your third contract, (laughs) but not always on your second contract. And DeJounte is certainly in that category.
2: Well, he's on both right now because he's on an extension of his second contract. I guess that's
3: true. This is where it gets fuzzy, you know? Yeah, yeah. I I still don't understand what it is the Hawks are getting from the Lakers in a hypothetical DeJounte-Murray deal that makes it worthwhile for the Hawks.
2: Well... I'm glad you said that because I've been thinking a lot about that. Dan Wolke had a really good article in LA Times where he almost ranked the Lakers assets. And I thought that was really good beat, beat writing because I think it really crystallized for me how valuable this 2029 unprotected first from the Lakers can be. Because I think we get into this mix where we just say first round picks, but clearly all first round picks aren't created equal. Like a lot of the picks that the New York Knicks have from other teams are so heavily protected. Like you might get something later in the, in the twenties, like four years from now is that as valuable as for instance, this Lakers pick. So it just to, to clarify in 2029, LeBron James will be 44 years old. Okay. Probably so, still playing. Yeah. In the Ronnie, middle of his prime, <laughs> as far as we're concerned. <laughs> exactly. But Anthony Davis will be 36 years old when that draft happens in 2029. And at that point, I assume AD will have to have affixed his arm to replace one of his legs and just dribble the basketball with one arm. He'll only go left from here on out. And so, I, but I do think like there's no way that the Lakers are in position at that point to be competing unless they've like hit a home run in free agency which before LeBron got there was a pretty dicey proposition and so I actually think the 2029 20, first if it's unprotected if you get it like another swap I actually think that's pretty good value if you want to turn the page on Murray we could talk about if you want to turn the page on this era of the Hawks but like I think that's good value
3: it I, I don't disagree that that's a valuable Pick and a valuable bet to make as another team, but what does that do for an Atlanta organization that's trying to win yesterday and that's trying to figure out? No, but they're giving up,
0: Rob. That's the idea. They're giving up.
2: Um, Yeah, I'm assuming that this is we're we're starting from scratch here, which like throwing in the towel. I agree with you. It is a little weird, but they they already have kind of sunk costs that they can't ignore here because they made such a bad deal for Murray to begin with. And so, like, it is tough to really find footing of where how you move forward with this team because it doesn't work, and you are due all these picks to the Spurs. I believe it's in 2027, 2029, that you hope don't you don't give them the next superstar in the league.
3: So this is a proposition in which you're bailing on Trey Young too?
2: No. I'm just going off of the assumption, based on how the reporting is suggesting, that they want to keep Young and Johnson and figure everything else around the two.
3: They want Young and Johnson and a pick that's five years from now? (laughs) I, I just don't, like, I
2: genuinely just don't see it. That doesn't mean it won't happen, but, like, I don't get it. I don't disagree with you. It does seem to be at odds with, like, how they want to do things, but, like... This is what is out there at this point. And it seems like they want to rebuild. But here's the
0: thing, though. As much as I get what you're saying, look at what they're doing right now. Does that make sense? Oh, it's not good. What's happening in Atlanta (laughs) isn't good.
3: I just think if Atlanta moves in a direction, it's going to be a direction of desperation trying to get guys who can play now, not distant picks that may or may not be relevant to this core.
2: It's no different than what the Nets are doing, though, where they gave up their picks and they are now supplementing their future or blood their future from the Suns. You know, you're just you're getting someone else's future as opposed to your own, which is just where we are in the NBA, where we're so far ahead with the picks that you, can, that you have to import somebody else's future. But the difference in those scenarios is that one of them has a player as
3: good as Trey Young in it. A a player who is good enough to demand some sense of urgency based on his quality of play alone, and Trey Young has his own list of problems, has his own issues, but like you don't abandon a team.
0: But Dejounte Murray was that break glass in case of emergency. For sure, it was like, all right, let's go out and get a guy to be next to Trey and take this seriously. And it's been a complete disaster. (laughs) It's not. So you're saying. (laughs)
2: Rob, you would just rather get players for players if you wanted to move Murray or I'm not, not s- trade Murray at all.
3: I don't think what I want is really relevant. I think what the Hawks, what they have shown us is what they want is to be competitive and to be competitive as immediately as possible. And I don't think that's what the standing show. But they haven't done it. That's <laughs> they the haven't thing. done they it.
0: Haven't, but, at some point, they got to throw in the towel. Like, you guys are bad at this trying to be good thing.
3: Yeah. <laughs> I just think the trying to be bad thing is a difficult proposition when you have a star guard who's in very productive years of his career and and also wants to win and wants to compete. Like the idea of just kind of punting on a team around Trey Young and expecting what's already kind of a dicey interpersonal situation to just be great seems naive to me. If that's the way things ultimately go,
0: I told y'all I don't think the Trey Young thing in Atlanta is ever going to happen. Maybe not.
2: I don't disagree with you, but at this point, it really comes down to internal motivations and like how they see the best way forward for the team. And we should mention that Landry Fields is relatively new to the main job, so maybe he wants his own people in there as opposed to guys that uh, he didn't go out and pick. And maybe he has the license to do something as bold as that and start fresh around there. But it's one of those teams that's stuck in the middle. So if you are committed to Trey, and I think you have to be committed to Trey because I don't know who is trading for him unless you want to dump him DeJounte Murray style. It, it, it's difficult.
3: Yeah. I, I just don't want us to get caught in this trap, and this happens all the time, of a team like the Lakers or a team like the Knicks or you know a big market team with a lot of interest and a lot of fans wants something, and then we just assume the other team is going to give it to them. And I say this understanding the complication in that sometimes historically that has literally happened like Pau Gasol got handed to the Lakers in a way that was kind of inexplicable in the moment so crazy things do happen but I I don't think that's what's happening
2: I think that just like Zach Levine being on the market I think it's natural for a team like the Hawks who is worse than the Bulls for Murray to be on the market and I don't think you would hear this much buzz if, if Murray wasn't being put forward by the Hawks or at least in discussions by the Hawks. Murray
3: should be on the market. The Lakers should be in the market for upgrades. I just don't see necessarily how the Twain shall meet.
2: Oh, okay. Well, then that gets us back to the 2029 pick being valuable. Yes. Yes. Okay. So you just hate everything. Nothing makes sense to you. <laughs> I think
3: if anything I'm saying I, I love everything too much. I love <laughs> Trey Young too much to want a 2029 20 pick to be his yeah. primary teammate.
0: You've enjoyed I, this I, Trey Young I, I, era too much. I'm just starting to think that Landry Fields might have spent a little bit too much time working for James Dolan. <laughs> and that's all I'm I mean, saying. Is, say for is that. it
2: any time working for James Dolan too
0: much time <laughs> working for James Dolan? So there's certain stink you can't get off yourself.
2: Well, why don't we turn the page uh, since we talked about, I guess, the Hawks instead of the Lakers. But uh, Rob, do you want to go with one of your teams now?
3: Yeah, let's let's talk about the Milwaukee Bucks, a team who I know Mm -hmm. we've been talking about on and off throughout the season in terms of what they will need via trade, what they could get via trade. I kind of want to circle in now as to what can this team actually get with their very limited trade resources? What is realistic for the Bucks at this point? Because... There's been some reporting, you know, like Chris Haynes reported for one that the Bucs had registered their interest in DeJounte Murray, and I'm sure they did. I'm sure they made that call. I'm sure that conversation was had, and there's no way in hell the Bucs are getting DeJounte Murray. There's just not, the math doesn't work, the assets don't work, there's no explanation. It would be even worse than a 2029 Lakers first round pick when you're settling in for like Pat Connaughton and Bobby Portis, because when you think about what the Bucs have to offer... To structure a trade. It's either going to be a Brooke Lopez or Chris Middleton type. And we can have that conversation as to whether they should be willing to trade those guys or not, or what's realistic for them. Or it's going to be someone like Connaughton or Bobby Portis as kind of the primary salary in a deal. And maybe there's some young talent attached. There's still some picks that the Bucks are able to move, but it's it's getting real, real hard to fashion a trade that's going to make Milwaukee meaningfully better this season with what they have to
0: offer. The Hawks are not making it. I mean, the Hawks, excuse me. The Bucks are not going to make an incredible trade. Uh, The cupboard is extremely bare. They might, you know, be able to try to cash a lottery ticket in the buyout market. Um, You know, I've heard rumblings that somebody like Bruce Brown, people saying he might be a buyout candidate because his, you know, his deal is not guaranteed next year. The, the, you know, stranger things have happened, Rob. But, like, again, that's what they got to pray for. They don't have the pieces to make something happen. They're just going to stand pat, and this is what it's going to be. And, I, you know, Doc Rivers said he wouldn't wish this on anybody. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't the buck so situation so much
3: as taking over a coaching job midseason. But I, I will admit, not not the best thing
2: you want to hear from your head coach in his first day on the job. So here is what the Bucks have to offer other teams. They have Portland's 2024 second round pick, which will probably be at the top of the second round next year. Not bad in terms of second rounders. You know, it's basically an extended first round pick. It's the Lakers' 2029
3: um, sure. pick of second rounders.
2: <laughs> yes. I you're devaluing the 2029 pick as if it's nothing. I don't, really, I, don't I also th- don't think you guys sold my Anthony Davis arm for a leg joke as much as it should have been. I thought that was very funny. I'm just put that uh, I missed there. it. No, I, th- I think I, I think it went it. right over our heads, unfortunately. I missed it. I missed it. Okay. So you weren't listening, even better. Uh, and they have, I think, their own 2027 second round pick. And I think that's it. And then it's salary. Yep. And so I think the choice really is, and I think this is where the, the discussion gets really interesting. Do you change who you are with Doc in there for days, maybe a week or two, or do you stand pat and just make it whatever you can work? Do you try to go and get a Royce O'Neal? Do you try to bring back a PJ Tucker? Just any sort of defensive player in there, or are we going the route of Chris Middleton or Brooke Lopez, we say that there's something foundationally needs to change here. I would assume it's the former, not the latter, considering how, quick, like how quickly they'll have to operate with Doc. He's supposed to debut on Monday, and he'll only have, like what, 10 days before the deadline? Yeah. But I think you can
3: make the case for the other. You can certainly make the case for it, and it's something they have to entertain. It's something they have to follow the thread on. I think the problem is, particularly with Brooke, who are you trading Brooke Lopez to that's going to give you something that is helpful to the Bucs this season that also doesn't sabotage the Bucs defense further at a time where they already don't have other bigs they can rely on? So I, I, don't, I think trading Brooke is not a non-starter in concept. It's just a non-starter in reality. Trading Chris Middleton could make sense. I think in the right context could make sense. And it would probably be a format. And this is something that uh, you know my editor, Isaac Levy-Rubin has kind of put in my ear, too, of the idea of breaking up Chris Middleton's deal into a couple of role players, the Lakers potentially being one of these teams that could use someone like Middleton, you know, get some defenders in there, get some other kinds of wings that can more prioritize the defense that the Bucs need on the perimeter. That could make sense. I still think he's pretty instrumental to what they do offensively as a mediator, as somebody who counterbalances. Giannis and Dame in some ways fills out lineups with creativity that they need. Like everything can't be coming from just those two guys. And once you trade Middleton, the proposition of keeping this offense afloat, the offense that has carried you all season, it definitely gets diceier.
0: I don't know how a team that's one of the 10 worst defenses in the NBA trades Brooke Lopez. That just seems insane. Hey, we're up to, to
3: eighteenth, was eighteenth ranked <laughs> oh. defense, <laughs> up and up
2: <laughs> to the
0: moon. Yeah, they scored like hundred okay. points the other day, but that's a whole other story. Okay, <laughs> okay. that's that's nice. There's a market improvement from twenty second for sure. Uh, I just don't know how you do that in their current state. And for me, the Bucks, man, like, can we see this group of fucking veterans play like? people who have met each other before and not some pickup rando basketball team, like, play better.
3: Yeah. That's (laughs) more important than any trade they could possibly make. They just have to play harder and better and more together. And that's, I mean, that's the reason why Doc's here to begin with.
0: Yeah.
2: and That's why I think like a Royce O'Neal or someone in that caliber where it's like, We'll take a flyer on maybe a wing defender as a rotation player who can maybe start if Malik Beasley, when Malik Beasley gets picked on in a playoff series. Thank you. And what I think is interesting about the Dame <laughs> trade and why that was such a surprise is that the Bucks turned what was an obvious flaw, that they're so over leveraged with picks, into a strength. That they said that we are so deep in the hole here with future draft picks. Let's just keep going down the hole. Let's get rid of the whole kit and caboodle. And I do think that is a strength at the deadline here where you're haggling over, oh, why don't I give this pick or protection? The Bucs are like, fucking take it all. You, you want these two seconds? Cool. Like, have them. Like, just give me this player because I need a just like an eighth man at this point just to make a credible run at the final. And this front office has actually, I
3: think, been pretty creative over the years with its trade packaging,
2: with figuring out
3: how um, getting a big pile of seconds and getting something of reasonable value, or at least like a decent bet. Jay Crowder has not worked out particularly well for the Bucks, but I understand the or thinking. Or Miritich
2: or Serge Ibaka,
3: yeah. But you
2: can see the how they got deals there. Are bad.
3: They, they haven't yeah. worked out, but you can see how they got there, and you can see how yep. they swung for some new blood and swung to give their team like a little dynamic that it didn't have before. But right now. The resources are more limited than they've ever been. And thus, the realistic trade targets, if you're not giving up Middleton or Lopez, are more limited than they've ever been. So, yeah, Royce O'Neal is a good name to flag. Dennis Smith Jr. is another net that I think could fit well with them, a guy who's really good defensively. And and I think you kind of play Dame more at the two in those scenarios, at, at least in terms of, you know, you can parse offense and defensive positions. But I think those guys can play together. I also come to guys like Dalon Wright, for example, with the Wizards, who is does not have a role with that team, but could be interesting for the Bucks. Every time I watch Io Desumu play, I think his energy could help a team like Milwaukee. Like what the urgency that he plays with could help a team like this. Ideally, if you had a little bit more to work with, I would love to see them make a run at someone like Dyson Daniels, who's not only a really great defender but really young and a good ball mover. But how do you make the argument to New Orleans that you should? Be deserving of a player like that when all you have to offer is this kind of scant draft capital. Second round pick. That's the one.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I don't I can't I can't get excited for a Royce O'Neill type who, even in the best of days, the three and D logic, the D of the logic was kind of, eh, you know, I like I think they need to admit. But see, but that's not going to move the needle for them. They need a legitimate defender. Like when you say Dennis Smith, he's turned himself into a real life point guard defender type of person. That I think would definitely help them in a lot of ways that they're lacking right now. Royce O'Neal and like, you know, these other veteran sort of wing types who barely can move their feet anymore. I, that de- that defense is not going to get better for having those dudes.
3: Well, speaking of guys who maybe can't move their feet anymore, or at least their entire leg, how would you feel about the Bucs rolling the dice on a currently injured with a calf ailment, Gary Harris? A guy who, in theory, makes sense for them. Not having the best year, admittedly, by his standards, but he's he's been hurt for a lot of it. Soft tissue injuries make me nervous. Lingering calf injuries make me nervous, especially if we're talking about a team that wants to be contending for the title this season, maybe Gary Harris is a non-starter. And again, on Orlando's side, they don't just want to give away a good veteran like Gary Harris. So maybe, maybe there's just nothing to be done
2: there at all. I don't think you can give up the salary matching, even if it's a Connaughton or a Portis or someone who isn't really working for them to get a guy who hasn't been playing yeah, because the one thing they do need is just minutes. I love the Gary Harris idea. I thought he was having a really great, like, kind of Renaissance season with the Magic. They were kind of—he's the type of guy who could start for the men at any point or flash to the bench. It's exactly who we're talking about. The Bucks need, but he hasn't played for like a month at this point. I, I would be worried about doing that.
3: That's the problem. You you can't target guys who are hurt or who have a long history of injuries necessarily because you need them to be able to play. You can't get guys who are too old. Because what the Bucs need really is like energy and young legs, and yet getting the young guys who are actually good is going to take more than Portland's second-round pick.
2: Well, since we're talking about teams that are over-leveraged and are just scraping the bottom of the barrel, let's talk about the Phoenix Suns. Sure. A team on, on my list who, up until Friday, had won seven in a row. And not just any seven, pretty good competition in that mix. And what do you know, Kevin Durant... Bradley Beal, Devin Booker works. Who are the ad wizards that came up with this one? (laughs) Rob, you were a doubter, so I do want to take your pulse on this. Okay, I was
3: never a doubter in the idea that those three guys are good and we'd be good together. I was a doubter in the idea that they would be on the floor together enough for to be able to compete.
0: Which, fairly,
2: you've you've been pretty right about that. (laughs) Yeah, that that has been true. Yes, there's time
3: yet, Justin. Uh, Like. Them figuring out their flow and their balance together, it looks great. I really, I really love watching them play. And I do think they have dismissed some of the concern about the lack of a point guard there. I think there's going to be games where they go through rashes of turnovers, but the possessions where they actually get a shot up are just way too productive to fret about whatever point guardy thing should or shouldn't be happening.
2: I agree with that. It's nice to see Bradley Beal kind of automatically scale in a way that I think really fits there. He isn't just jostling for the ball. He has taken a more Boshian supplementary role, and all of a sudden, he's back shooting again. That was kind of the concern troll that I thought was the dumbest thing when Beal was traded. Like, Especially, first of all, they didn't trade much to get him. So to get a talent like Bradley Beal, to me, that trade always made sense. But then there was a lot of, oh, well, he's migrated into the mid-range. Can he be kind of like a spacing three-point shooter like he was before? And instantly, he has. I, to me, it was always like he was taking tough shots with the Wizards. He was taking shots. He probably was forcing a lot of the times because he wanted to do the James Harden thing. He's back up to 38% from three. That's the most, uh, that's the highest percentage from three since 2016, 2017, which less healthy John Wall season. I don't think that's a coincidence. So, um, it's good to see the Suns lock into place. Was do you see? Do you think any differently about the Suns now? Or are you still kind of in the same ballpark where like they do have the offense as long as those guys are playing?
0: Yeah, nothing's changed. I, I you know, I was very concerned with the amount of games that Brad Bill was missing because you know it's a back right, and those are notoriously tough to come back from and be able to stay on the floor. Again, you can't be surprised that Devin Booker, Kevin Durant, and Bradley Beal have generated good offense. Like we all understand that it's why Kevin Durant's in the goat conversation. Um, but <laughs> I, I, would, I would say that I'm I'm more bullish on them now than I was obviously prior to the streak because it just seems so discombobulated and they could never get their timing right. But it's nice to see it finally coming together.
3: Well, so Justin, what do you what do you think that they need? Because some of their minimum guys have paid off. Some of them have been, I I wouldn't say whiffs, but have been had better moments than necessarily extended stretches. Where where are you seeing the the deficits for them right now?
2: Yep, I do think we need to give some respect to Grayson Allen, who was lumped into the use of Nurkic garbage pile when those trades happened. I think he's been a revelation. Uh, (laughs) On the other hand, I don't think they need 17 shooting guards. So if they can get someone with some size to go around here, on the one hand, like I do feel like the team that they have now is an interesting foil to the teams with size, particularly in the West, the Denver's the the, the Minnesota's where we're just going to jump shoot you to death. And you guys have to come out and guard us. Let's see you, your big ass move in, in space with the rest of us. I think it's a real match of uh, styles that I'm interested in to see there. It would be nice if they had someone to guard guys who are bigger than a point guard. So, I can see keeping Allen because he's played so well on the one hand. I could also see them using him as fodder in order to get a big wing defender because that is why you see them talked about with the Royce O'Neal types. um, Some of the other guys that we've mentioned, Miles Bridges is another name that gets connected with them. And I will say that like anyone who trades for Miles Bridges at this deadline is going to be cursed immediately. (laughs) And so whatever karmic balance exists in the world will just completely just Exit your franchise in perpetuity.
3: Yeah, don't but don't
2: do it. I, I could see I could see the type that they're going for, and so for me, it would make a lot of sense to do that. And unlike the Bucks, they have several seconds now. The quality of those seconds, who knows? <laughs> Definitely not a Portland second. Let me tell you that. Um, there's like protections on their seconds. I was like, well, why? When did we get this far? Why? Why are we at this point in life? Um, but they have like the currency to get guys to fill out some of the roster spots. But
3: so you're falling into the trap, which is Grayson Allen is less essential to the Suns when all their guys are out there. But you miss Mm. anyone, especially if you're missing Booker or Beal. He's one of their most important players. It's true. So can you afford to trade a guy like that?
2: You could probably scrounge salary together. Like Nazir Little, for instance, is a guy that I think makes some sense, although he's on a four-year deal. You can swap some stuff around with other
3: teams for sure. You know, guys on their benches who aren't playing that much or guys who just, like, don't fit into their lineups. One, one player who I just become obsessed with the idea of getting to the Suns, and I don't think this will happen for obvious competitive reasons, how do we get Jared Vanderbilt on the Phoenix Suns? Mm. That kind of can guard kind of one through four on ball against really good threats. Obviously has problems fitting into the lineup sometimes with the Lakers to the point that he's hasn't been starting. Not yesterday. Although now he might the be plus, starting, a, yeah, might be starting again after being plus 30 in a two-point double overtime game. He's the new OG on an OB with the plus minus. <laughs> he might be, but he could be that for the Suns too, right? Like he could be such a nice versatile on-ball defender in a way that spells whoever you would want to put on an opponent's star because he can guard such a wide range of players.
2: Interesting idea, but I don't know, why. That seems, that seems These, a bit stiff. The,
0: the, the, the second the Suns' second round picks being the bait and Grayson Allen. It may, like, of course, they would like to upgrade the rosters, particularly at the wing position, which oh, just happens to be the most premium position in the league, and it costs you to get those kind of guys in your building. Yeah, man they they might want to kick the tire. <laughs> they they might want to just. Wait for the buyout market. I think so because just the yeah. idea that they would be able to execute a trade—they well, can't do that. Yeah,
3: these, they're above the apron, right? They're above the second oh, apron. So the well, so they, they can do it for have, a certain kind of a certain salary of player, but not the premium any, guys,
2: anyone below twelve point four million. Yeah. yeah.
3: So no, no Kyle Lowry for the Phoenix Suns.
0: Mm-hmm. Probably for the better.
3: <laughs> we're, we're gonna have to have that conversation of wh- wh- which team should sign Kyle Lowry, and then we're gonna have to revisit the conversation of when was the last time he hit a shot or took a shot.
0: Yeah, Yeah. Uh, I mean, been he's
3: tough. he's a
2: future Laker if they because I don't think they're gonna get close to the second apron. They'll they'll relive the trade that they almost made a few years ago. Um. Why don't we do, since we're on the big market stretch, why don't we turn now to our friend Big Waz, who has another team from his coastal elitist selections?
0: It's, it's the Knicks, man. Um, the OG Ananobi trade has been a home run. There's absolutely no other way to put it. They've won six in a row. OG is breaking plus-minus <laughs> records by the day. Left and right. Shattering plus-minus records. Um. Again, like we thought he would be this ideal sort of Tibbs player. It's been even better than that. And again, they're twenty nine and seventeen. Should they be trying to get even better? That, like, that's that's the question to me, right? Like, how confident are they in this bunch that they should be trying to get better? And how much better is it on the margins? Because Brunson missed a few games uh, a week and a half ago or two weeks ago, and it got pretty nasty pretty quick the offense was just literally could do nothing at all. And so they still need some of that scoring punch, but you know, I think the team functions in such a way that anybody if they got a quality two, if they got a, you know, a backup a backup point guard, a quality wing, they could use an upgrade at all of these positions. Um and so yeah, I think they should be trying to make a move. They should be working the phones. Um and and figuring it out. Of course, they want to keep the, the the powder dry for that big fish, that big whale, whoever the hell that might be. But I think they should be trying to make this team better, you know, with eyes on this postseason because I think they're going to be a super tough out for any of the East top teams.
2: Well, I do think their situation is pr- pretty similar to what Miami was in before they swung the Terry Rozier trade. There is very much a do we wait out the market. And hope that a Mitchell, a Carl Anthony Towns down the road comes to bear? Or do we just go in now, Rob, get someone like a DeJounte Murray, just get a Bruce Brown, a Malcolm Brogdon? Let's just fill this like second this backcourt spot, perhaps, and just be the best team we could be right now. Do you f- which side of things do you fall on? Yeah,
3: what what makes their situation materially different than the Heat is this team is really good right now in the regular season, proving it on an every night basis. They're, they're sixth in point differential right now. This isn't a team that you just like sit back and say like, oh, we're, we're good enough. It's you're looking at that bench, as Waz said, and saying, how can we make this better? How can we make this more well-rounded? We've talked plenty about, you know, some scoring punch, your Jordan Clarkson types, or maybe that's a Tim Hardaway Jr. reunion. Maybe that's a name that I've been thinking about and Magic fans, this is going to seem like I'm trying to trade away all your players, but really it's because I see some value in them. And it's like, Markel Fultz could be awesome in a role like this. Coming off the bench for a team like the Knicks, spelling Jalen Brunson, playing with Jalen Brunson some, being like a driving force that could really help them and that they need. And I don't think he's like a long-term solution for Orlando necessarily. He's like, he's starting right now, he's filling in, but it's kind of clear that they're trying to move in a different direction. They're trying to pivot ultimately uh, to a different kind of point guard. I wonder if something like that could work. But I love these kind of like mid-level, lower-end options for the Knicks, much more than a DeJounte Murray type deal. I don't think they need that. I just think they need their bench to be slightly better. And if it is, they're going to give some of these really good Eastern Conference teams a a serious run for their money.
0: Yeah, DeJounte Murray can't be the play there. Because here's the thing. If DeJounte Murray is as good as everybody wants us to think, he wouldn't be on the trade block. (laughs) <laughs> like like this idea that he that you should give up real stuff as if this guy's actually gonna change your fortunes. I'm not saying he's a bad player. I'm just saying for the aspirations that the Knicks have, can this guy come in and actually make a material difference? I don't know. he hasn't made one for the Hawks in a manner that, you know, affects winning and losing. So I don't know. That's why I do think on the margins it does make more sense. And, you know, they get to keep their hopes alive for the next whoever this star player is that they want to bring in. But I do think they should be trying to upgrade this thing because they've shown and proven that they can kick ass on a given night and they should roll the dice on somebody.
3: Waz, I also don't want to give up the clarity that has come with the OG and an Obi deal, right? Like moving away from RJ Barrett, who's been really good for Toronto, but I think muddied up some of the picture for the Knicks sometimes has been clarifying and really helpful in a way that I I don't want to just like throw DeJounte Murray into the mix now and muddle things up again. Like the Knicks make sense. And I want to build on that as much as anything.
2: I would split the difference of the two. I think going for just like a bench player to be like my eighth or ninth man probably is a little too on the low end for me, but I don't necessarily disagree with you both because they want to keep the seat warm for whatever superstar does come available. Cause at the very least they should be open to that idea. If a Mitchell wants to come, et cetera. But I do see a clear hole there where if you're going Dante Di Vincenzo at the two, into a playoff battle. I, I do think they could get better than that, which is why I do think like a Bruce Brown type is interesting to me where he is kind of, you're, yeah, I he would just be, see everybody.
3: He would be so funny as an. he's just like the natural evolution of the Dante DiVincenzo, Josh Hart thing that the Knicks do. Like another <laughs> sure. undersized kind of two guard to come in, muck stuff up, rebound better than his size, defend bigger than his size. He fits he's like a, a Tibbs glove. Guy. He is an, he absolutely is a tips guy.
2: And I do have to say the one thing that the Knicks have going for them is that their identity is just so crystal clear at this point. I think OG just solidified that. The swap of him and RJ. And there was this quote that was circling around from like one of the New York papers I forgot, but that like they tried to get off of all of the softies and Obi Toppin was kind of the clear cut guy there. I don't know. I like I don't have it that's rude. But they are some hardo like Pat Riley type of guys in that team now and it really just does exude and I think it is working for them and I do think if you're going to go out and add to this you do want a guy that fits that sort of mold there is a real like Tibbs culture thing happening going on there and I, I want to be additive to that and maybe Murray for instance wouldn't be a, a good candidate for that specific type of player
3: well attention to all softies the Knicks may not want <laughs> you but we do Groove Chat is a place for softies I
0: think <laughs> Hey man, they're trying to call Quentin Grimes a softy now. Um he's I falling like out of favor somehow. I'm I love Grimes. Love him. He guards people, he shoots it. It's just, I don't know. For whatever reason, it just hasn't. I thought he was gonna take off as soon as, you know, RJ and quickly left. Like it seemed like clear minutes for him, but that just hasn't been hasn't been the case. Um I don't know. I I I really think. Again, because it's funny, right? Because the old Knicks, no question would have thrown everything they had at DeJounte Murray. He's a name, he's a quote, he's allegedly an upgrade, like the old New York Knicks would have went so hyper aggressive to turn this team into what they think is gonna be, quote unquote, the next level, but this regime, man, is so much more patient than we're used to seeing at MSG. And yeah, I think they're going to do something more temperate, moderate than, you know, just go go crazy and maybe slightly overpay for a guy.
3: I feel like you just walked us up to the edge of a DeJounte Murray is the 2024 Steve Francis take and then back back <laughs> slowly away from it. But you walked us right up to it, Was.
2: Well, One thing we should talk about is that Julius Randle seems like might be out for about a month here. Yeah. He did dislocate his shoulder toward the end of yesterday's game against the Heat, which was really tough to watch at times. Um, and obviously, if they are going to import a star, it probably means Randall is out. And so I did want to take a kind of pulse temp check was on the Julius Randall experience. Do you get the sense from just like the New York vibes coursing through you that Randall is like alleviated himself to a certain degree that like you're not trading him for like a mid-tier option but we would trade him for a superstar or where where's the fan base at at this point.
0: Yeah, I think people have kind of bought in on him. He had that season after the initial it's his second season in New York where you know, he overachieved in the first year and everybody was happy and everybody's looking at him like, "Oh, you're our guy, you're the leader of the team." And he essentially salted through the entire season. And Nick fans were not happy about it. Like just his body language and the way that he was comporting himself, people just thought that was unbecoming of a guy who's supposed to be the leader of the goddamn New York Knicks. But he's turned that around, man, to the point where, you know, he's the one yelling at the crowd, getting people involved at games these days, right? Um, he's he's sort of become a mainstay and a staple. But I think Nick fans are savvy enough to understand that if an actual you know, star was on the table. Julius Randle got to go. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm proud of him for turning it around, man, and 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 making himself into an indispensable part of this version of the team. You know, make no mistake about it. Like, they go because him and Jalen Brunson are going. Of course, Brunson is taking the mantle as the main guy, but what Randle does is extremely important for them. Like this, you know, this goes without saying the guy's averaging 25 and 12. Like it's, it's ridiculous, you know? And so I I think people have, have grown to love him, you know, freaking Nick fans that if you stick around long enough, you're going to become a quote unquote Nick legend. And so I think Randall has, has kind of made himself into a Nick legend, but if, if the right deal comes along, nobody's going to cry about it. But
3: to your point about him making himself indispensable, I think that's what makes these next couple of weeks so interesting for New York. They they can get by, and they do get by in games when he goes to the bench, when the rotation you know goes to the second unit. They can they can gut out those minutes, but you turn that into a month, Justin. You turn that into six weeks. There's not like a natural replacement for Julius Randle. His game is so particular, it's so unique. He's he's so versatile and talented in a way that like OG Anobi is probably going to slide over to the four but that dramatically changes the shape of everything that the Knicks are doing.
2: Yeah, so maybe they're more likely to get a bench ball handler like a Jordan Clarkson, some of the guys you were mentioning, a Malcolm Brogdon, for instance, because they need the playmaking. I did think it was interesting when they made the Ananobi trade, they also got Preston achua to fill an obvious hole at backup center because Mitchell Robinson wasn't there. And so that was a little more like a we're trying to fill holes for this season as opposed to like seven years down the road, sort of uh, just jangying the, the roster building that teams typically do. And I was like, oh, this is like we're in 1994 again. Um, Well, since we are talking about superstars that the Knicks could target, I do want to talk about the Cleveland Cavaliers, who I cannot think of another team in recent history that's been so paralyzed by their own success. They are (laughs) 9-1 and over their past 10, despite not having Evan Mobley, despite not having Darius Garland. And there's something Rob's like so. guy
0: Evan Mobley, addition <laughs> by subtraction. Wow. So.
2: <laughs> there is something so wow beautiful in its simplicity that everything we've said about the Cavs that when Mobley and, and Garland aren't in there, just like clicks into play. Pay, uh, in, just clicks into place, where it's like they just have shooting now. Yeah, and yep. they've been awesome on defense. And what do you know? It works. And so you might say like, man, maybe the Cavs need to rethink this whole deal. Like, should we trade Evan Mobley? Should we trade Darius Garland? <laughs> but then you remember. Trade his ass. Ship him out. <laughs> I think it'd be interesting. But then you remember Donovan Mitchell might not even be long for this team you know, past this half mm-hmm. season. And so like, how do you do anything without knowing Mitchell's own long-term future? And so like, in a weird way, they're the team we should be talking about the most. But Rob, I, I don't think they could do anything. I think they're 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 paralyzed at this point. Well, I'm paralyzed. My head is spinning
3: <laughs> trying to figure out what the Cavs are or should be, because yeah, that the new kind of core group that they've been putting together and rolling out there during these injuries. I wouldn't have expected it to be this good defensively. I wouldn't have expected it to be this clean in terms of the playmaking. I Put wouldn't. some
0: respect on Dean Wade's name,
3: God. <laughs> Gladly. You know, Maxters, Dean Wade, those guys have shown up. Jared Allen has been sensational during this stretch in particular in a way that it makes the idea of trading Jared Allen, if you're trying to make room for Evan Mobley, also seem crazy. All All avenues lead to something crazy at this point. Like, how do you break up a team that is this good in this form by overcomplicating it with the stars that you're ultimately going to bring back. And yet that's obviously what you should do to put the most talented groups on the floor. I I don't know what to do with them. Like it it has been such a clarifying experience, getting them back to basics, getting them into a a very simplified streamlined form. But the reality of their core four right now is that that's not a streamlined operation. That's something that has to be finagled. It's something that has to be maneuvered. It's something that's complicated. And if they want to continue buying into that process, as they probably should, there's just going to be a lot of ups and downs that come with it. Like, it's never going to be this easy. And yet, how do you give up something that's this easy?
0: I don't think there's ever been a GM in the history of the league with big enough balls to move in Evan Mobley, to be like, we're off the youth movement and all in on this idea. We got this vet. He's an all-star. The, like, it's just not done. You you just don't do that. However, you know, my thing is this idea that you can be unconventional and that there will be some level of seamlessness to it, it. It just doesn't exist. And Evan Mobley needs to find a way that when he's inserted, they can play closer to this version of themselves. Because when he's been around, they can't. You know, they have to fit around his limitations. And I get it. Everybody thought he was the next Kevin Garnett. And it was gonna be this great thing. And years of years of uh Cavaliers competence by Evan Mobley and his great defense and blah blah blah. Never mind that he can't make a jump hook to save his life. I just think these are these are longer and harder questions than I think we thought coming into the season. Where it's like, this guy's not playing and my team becomes clarified because we play a more conventional, modern NBA offense because of that? You know, these are tough questions, man. And, you know, you wonder when he comes back, of course, obviously he's an all-defense, defensive player of the year level guy. But, you know, how do you make the offense feel less clunky um, when he's back, I, I I'm I'm wondering. And and I wonder, yeah, what do what do they feel like they need to do with the deadline, if anything? We're we're wondering a lot,
3: which is kind of the problem with what has happened here, is I have a tremendous yeah. amount of respect for the way the Cavs have turned around their season. They were languishing in a way that was I thought they were dead. I, I thought they were dead in the water. I was worried that we were gonna start seeing some trades made out of necessity versus made out of strategy, out of want to to move in a particular direction. They saved themselves from all that. They've played tremendously well. They've been one of the best defenses in the NBA this season. And the way that guys have stepped into that rotation and filled minutes is genuinely very admirable. But we have no answers. All this stretch has done is create more questions for a team that already had a lot of questions.
2: If Mobley could shoot, I think it solves a lot of problems. And I think you give him the opportunity to figure that out because he does have touch. It hasn't materialized at all. He definitely does not have force, so he needs touch. Uh, and but I do think that would probably solve things. If we're assuming that Mitchell goes eventually, I could see a world where Garland masquerades as Mitchell and Mobley just like at the very least spaces on there. He could use some of uh, his passing brilliance for a big and and whatnot, and it could work. But. As far as now, as far as right now, no, I I can't figure out anything. Maybe you could trade Garland. Like if you knew Mitchell wanted to stay in a version of this team, like he's just just completely bowled over by what we've done here. I want to be the guy here, which probably won't happen. Just trade Garland. Let's find pieces in order to just keep this thing rolling. But that's not how reality works. It's not (laughs) how the star game really works. I think the thing about Mobley,
3: too, is it's not just a force and and touch and shooting question. Shooting is definitely the easiest way to get a big on the floor with another true big. You know, Minnesota is a great example. Carl Towns being able to shoot at the level he does is what makes that thing viable on offense. Most of the other big, big pairings in the league, they run on exceptional offensive feel and that's what Mobley doesn't have. He has great feel on defense. Great feel in coverage. His ability to switch, his ability to show up for other guys, his ability to rotate. 99th percentile in terms of his defensive awareness in the league. Offensively he doesn't have that. He doesn't know how to fill spaces. He doesn't know when he should be in the dunker versus at the free throw line versus, you know, cutting opposite the action. That's where the the lack of progress when he has been healthy has been so disappointing. It's like Maybe he's never going to be a great three-point shooter. Maybe he's never going to be a dominant low-post guy. But can he feel out his place in a complex, evolving offense? And I don't think we've seen a lot of evidence to suggest that he's going to be able to do that in a way that lets him play with another big like Allen.
2: All right, why don't we get to our last team here? Rob, you still have one more on your list? Yeah.
3: Again, going, going straight to the other. We had a lot of coastal action today. But at least we're going smaller market on the coast, or at least medium-sized market on the coast. I want to talk about the Sacramento Kings. In part, they've had a very strange season. And I want to unpack that a little bit because they've never seemed fully comfortable or at least as comfortable and settled as they were last year. Even over the last few weeks, you know, Darren Fox plays pretty well, but also has some like really off games. And there's nothing disastrous happening. There's just games where the rhythm of that team doesn't feel quite right. And so I'm trying to figure out why that is. I'm trying to diagnose why that is. And with where the rotation is right now, I would say they have a pretty solidified top six. You have Fox and Sabonis. You have Murray and Barnes. You have Herder, who is back starting again, seems to be coming out of his funk. Very grateful for that. And then you have Malik Monk, who's just one of the most productive and one of the most delightful bench players in the league. Love Malik Monk. Everything else is completely freeform in a way that makes this yet another one of these Nixie teams where they have the high-end options, or at least relatively high-end options, you know, the Pascal Siakam Derby, they got into a, for a hot minute, and that kind of idea of more dramatically shaking up that top six. Or there's like, how do you shore up the seventh and eighth guys in the rotation to make this just make the whole thing more playoff worthy? And that feels more likely for a whole bunch of reasons. And what's good about Sacramento's bench is that you can also see a lot of plausible upgrades over the guys that they're rolling in with the second unit. So they, they have a lot to work with theoretically, but maybe they're not the most exciting options on the board.
0: And they have stuff to, to actually trade real tradable
3: assets for the world.
0: (laughs) They have picks, they have some contracts that they can move around. Um, yeah, I think the Davion Mitchell situation has been disappointing if we're being honest, especially when you think about where they picked him up in the draft. Uh, her, her. Yeah, I I think when you got somebody like Fox, man, your your job should absolutely be make make these upgrades wherever you need them because he is just a bona fide star. He changes the complexion of every game that he's in. He's awesome. And I think they should be trying to be hyper aggressive in the deadline. I love that they was in the Siakam sweepstakes. Of course, he you know he politely declined, but. I love that they were in on him. They should be trying to swing that type of, that level of deal. Because I think, you know, look, man, that's still the, the crazy thing about the NBA these days. Like, as good as the Clippers are, as good as, you know, Phoenix may be, I don't think they're that much better than the Kings. I don't think the Kings should look at themselves as, oh, these guys are way out of our class. So they should be trying to, get better soon and being super aggressive about it.
3: One thing about the Pascal Siakam situation where I think there is a little bit of a silver lining and one reason why I would be hesitant to make a big swing unless you're really certain about the guy you're getting and that it's going to be a great fit is I look at Keegan Murray and I see a player who I don't want to encumber his opportunity. Mm -hmm. I think the way he's improved defensively this season what he's shown he can do in flashes, you know, handling as like a second side guy for the offense, doing a little bit of creation. I, I, he's not going to be a superstar, but that guy has a, a lot of headroom in his game, a lot of room to grow. And part of me does want to nurture that and leave room for that in a way that if you get Pascal Siakam, Keegan Murray turns into Harrison Barnes. And I mean that in like Warriors sit in the corner, Harrison Barnes. And I, I don't,
2: I want him to be more than that. 32, 39 against the Warriors the other night. Whew. Put some respect on Harry B's name. But
3: it, it's I not could... the week to bad to badmouth Harrison Barnes, that's for sure. Our guy, <laughs> our guy has been delivering.
2: Just give it a few days and you'll you'll be back in, in the clear here. But it seems like r- Rob all roads lead to the player I think you're going to mention. The the one with the vast scarf collection and the <laughs> jackets nine times bigger than his body frame.
3: You're speaking of Jeremy Grant. Of course.
0: Yes.
3: (laughs) That's a great, like, threading the needle option, right? He's not Pascal Siakam level of either player or investment or, like, required cost, but he could make them materially better. I think that's a straight down the middle, makes a ton of sense in terms of who the Kings should be targeting. Would love the Jeremy Grant fit for Sacramento. I wonder, though, if the swing is even going to be that big or if we're going to end up more in, like, the... The range of guys we've been talking about—the Royce O'Neals, the Dorian Finney-Smiths, the Jayshon Tates—the
2: Royce O'Neal Derby is heating up,
3: my it's, friends. It's really heating up at least on this up.
0: podcast. But but why? Well,
3: <laughs> well you, look—you look at Sacramento's bench, and you're just trying to find someone who's like a little more well-rounded out than Chris Duarte or Kessler Edwards. Who some of those guys, like you know, sometimes they don't even get into the mix on some nights. You're trying to find a guard who can put an end to the Davion Mitchell Keon Ellis carousel. That's been happening behind deer and Fox this season. How about you split the difference?
2: Go with a guy who hasn't been able to play lately, but seems to be on the verge of coming back in Brooklyn. I'm of course talking about Ben Simmons. Jesus Christ. This is not, no, this is not the market I'm trying to get into. You want a
3: guard? I'll give you both (laughs) in one player, baby. It's not exactly what I had in mind. Uh, but i appreciate you trying to throw his name out there <laughs> trying to trying to get the word of mouth going around the water cooler for ben simmons
2: build hype until the return on monday until he the, then the doesn't yeah. actually return. <laughs> the return
3: but the the kings are in a position where they can make lots of different kinds of calls which i think is what makes them an exciting deadline team you can you can get into more adventurous conversations around players of pascal siakam's caliber you can also just like kick the tires on Tyus Jones, and if that would be a good backup point guard for you. I, I would at least check in on DeAnthony Melton. I don't think that's a realistic guy because I think the Sixers need him too much. But that's the kind of player who could really help them. Bruce Brown, why not? Let's like let's make the call. Bogdan yeah. Bogdanovich, bring him home. Let's, or at least, you know, his his first American <laughs> home. Let's bring him home again.
2: <laughs> he had such a good
0: run yeah, when I, he was there the first I, time. I think somebody like Dorian Finney Smith makes a lot more sense to me because he actually guards people. Um and you know he can make an open shot for sure. I, I just think if you're going to get a guy, don't just get a place filler. I get it. Some of these rotation minutes are going to guys that they kind of need some say, place fillers God, yeah. though. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they they do need some place fillers. But I, I I would like to see the Kings be aggressive, man.
2: Yeah, I mean. Although it has been a mildly disappointing season in Sacramento, they kind of have lost their edge a little bit where they aren't just blistering offensively and they've kind of settled into the middle on both ends of the ball. They're kind of just right in the mix there. And I feel like the one trade can augment them to maybe lean in one direction or another. Maybe we're going to be a little bit better defensively and maybe we're top 10 on defense. And then maybe we're like... 10th on offense or something like that. Or we go back to what worked for us in the first place. Let's just go balls to the walls. Let's start Malik Monk, for instance. And like, let's just be the offensive supercharging. Let's be like one of the 10 teams that's breaking offensive record this year, as opposed to the one just outside of that, uh, that line.
3: The in the mix question with them is so interesting too, because by wins and losses in the standings, they're absolutely in the mix. One of these teams has just been hovering in that kind of like four to six range in the West for a lot of the season putting themselves in a great position to compete for seeding, for playoff equity, like all those things are really important. By point differential, they've been in a different class from the good Western Conference teams for all basically the whole season. And some of that started when Fox was out, but also it's just been kind of perpetuating as they've, as they've kind of failed to lock into the best things that they do. And, you know, your mileage may vary as far as like how much that matters to you or how much of that a, a concern that is to you. But it's notable when you look at every team that's around them in the standings being dramatically better by point differential. And the Kings is like the outlier of that group. Historically, that doesn't bode well for those teams. Those, te- those are the kinds of teams that get upset in first round series or lose matchups that they shouldn't. And the Kings, by God, have they lost games that they shouldn't this year? Like they just punt. If, if the other team has guys out, the Sacramento Kings will probably lose to you at some point this season. So there's some stuff like that where I just like want them to get their heads screwed on a little more tightly because this is a good, talented team, a successful and competent team. And I want to ride those vibes into something meaningful in the playoffs.
2: Having said that, the Clippers just blew out the Celtics yesterday. I do think there is going to be that division regardless. Like, I, I do think regardless of what they're going to do at the deadline, they're probably going to find themselves in a similar situation. But I agree with you. I, th- I do think that they have room to grow here and be the best version of their team to see what they can do in the playoffs. Um, why don't we wrap it there? We'll be back on Wednesday as per usual. Thank you to Jack Sanders on production. Thank you to Ben Cruz. We'll see you next time. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Kentucky, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, Vermont, and Virginia call 1-800-next-step or text next-step to 53342 42 in Arizona one 888 789 7777 or visit ccpg.org/chat in Connecticut 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland Visit 1 800 gambler.net in West Virginia or call 1 800 4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gambling helpline or call 800 for 24 7 support in Massachusetts or call one eight seven seven eight HOPE NY or text HOPE NY in New York.